0: If you're here with us tonight and you find yourself without a Bible, we do want you to have a Bible. So just raise your hand. Someone will be coming down the aisle and they'll get one into your hands. I think, especially on the Sunday nights, you'll be fairly at a loss um, without being able to have a Bible to refer to. So good to see all of you. Don, good to see you tonight over there. Got the Book of Ruth this evening in our journey through the Scriptures. Normally we begin a new book, I like to do a little bit of an introduction to orient ourselves before we even get into it, uh, but I thought tonight we would just tear into it before we begin the introduction. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. So here we go with the introduction. (laughs) I try to break these patterns in my life and I, I knew you could appreciate it, so It is a very important half-sentence introduction to the book of Ruth and very important for us to realize that the whole setting of this beautiful story that we're going to be reading here, this account, uh, is set during the time in Israel's history known as the time of the judges. And it was a time, as we've seen, having just studied the book of Judges, when everyone was doing that which was right in their own eyes rather than doing that which was right In the eyes of the Lord. And the result of that was a a 300 plus year period in the history of the nation of Israel in which they repeated seven times this thing referred to as a cycle of sin. And I won't get into that again. But then also the culture in that cycle of sin when they gave themselves to rebellion against God. The culture itself broke down into anarchy, religious anarchy, and moral anarchy. And the book of Judges closed with two examples of the kind of sinful depths that the nation of Israel fell into during the period of the Judges. One was a religious example having to do with Micah and a priest by the name of Jonathan, a Levite anyway, that was a, 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 of, uh, became a priest. Uh, illegitimately to Micah and then the whole tribe of of Dan. And then there was a second illustration, uh, the account of the horrible moral depravity that involved a a Levite, his concubine, and the city of Gibeah, and, and then the tribe of Benjamin. And thankfully, the Lord doesn't leave us with those two examples of the kind of people that were in Israel during the period of the Judges, but he gives us one more story from that very, very dark time in Israel's history, only this is a story that's a beautiful love story, full of, of holiness and godliness and, and redemption. Now, because as Christians we are living in a world and, and more closely living in a nation that is making the same bad choices that the nation of Israel made thousands of years ago, and that is Replacing God's definitions of good and bad and right and wrong with their own definitions of good and bad and right and wrong, and and then we are seeing before our very eyes, on literally a, week, a weekly basis, the terrible consequences of this uh, switching of the price tags or the swishing of the of the de- definitions, and seeing things grow worse and worse. Uh, every day, and I think that until the Lord returns, the possibility of it grow, things getting even worse uh, on the way, right around the corner. And as things grow worse and worse spiritually and morally in our culture, I think that we can begin to wonder two things. First of all, it all seems so overwhelming, what can I do about it? You ever felt that way? is a christian it 's just so much happening so fast, and it, what in the world can I do about it is a christian and I think that the second question that begins to enter into our minds is what difference uh, can anything that I do uh, make in this kind of a headlong plunge toward ungodliness by the culture and i 'm sure that you have felt that same emotion and thought in, in your heart and in your mind and And it's beautiful because the book of Ruth, uh, the answer of the book of Ruth to the question, it seems so overwhelming, what can I do about it? The answer of the book of Ruth is to just simply live a quiet, simple life of obedience to God's Word. No matter how dark or depraved religion gets around us, Even professing Christianity or how dark and depraved things get morally all around us. The answer to, um, I I think that in every, and, and the Bible bears it out, that in every period of human history, there is always a godly remnant. A group of people who stay faithful to God, no matter what the culture does, no matter what all the people around them do, no matter what religion uh, does, the whole rest of the world can go headlong into new definitions in sin, and this group will stay true to the Lord. And it is through that remnant, that small core of godly people, that God is able to continue His work in human history. And I want to be a part of that remnant I don't think I'm better than anybody else. But by the grace of God that we just sung about, I want to be a part of that remnant. And sometimes that remnant gets very, very small in human history. You think about the time of Noah. The remnant, they estimate as they look at the genealogies of the book of Genesis and they look at the lifespan, people living 800 years, 900 years, and, and the, uh, the, the number of years that were there for the ability to produce children as a result and all of this. And, and they figure that the population of the world potentially was not much less than it is today. And at the time of the judgment of the world, the time of Noah, there were eight people. That's how small the remnant got in the world for God's plan for redemption and His plan in human history to continue. got down to eight people. I think about the time, as we'll see in about 25 years, when we get to um, Elijah, when he was in the northern kingdom of Israel and up against the wickedness of Ahab and, and Jezebel, And he cried out to the Lord and said, "You know, Lord, they've wiped out. You know, in essence, they've wiped out everybody that's godly and making a stand for you. I alone am making a stand for you." And and the Lord informed uh, uh, Elijah that no, there are seven thousand just like you that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Now, seven thousand is a lot better than one, but that's a very very small remnant that existed at that time for God to continue His work through. And as we're going to see in the book of Ruth, the life of holiness and obedience to God is still its own great blessing in spite of all of the moral and the religious depravity that goes on around us. One of the interesting things is that for the child of God, I mean, what other option is there really? To walking with this wonderful God that we serve. I love it when Peter spoke in, I think it's John, John chapter 6, where uh, this tremendous apostasy was taking place away from Jesus because he was making tremendous demands of these f- physical kind of followers of, of him, of what would be required to follow after him. And as this great multitude of people with uh, wrong motives for following him began to melt away. He turned to the twelve and he said, Will you leave me also? And, and Peter said, Where will we go? Because you have the words of everlasting life. Lord, we don't have any options other than, than you. And so even in the midst of it, no matter how dark the world gets, our lives can be bright and rich and full and good because of our own personal relationship with the Lord. The, the, the book of Ruth's answer to the second question, what difference can anything I do make in this kind of headlong plunge toward ungodliness by the culture, uh, the, the answer of Ruth to that, the book of Ruth to that question, is that's not your problem. That's God's problem. That's not my problem. I can't carry the weight of all that. You can't carry the weight of all of that. It is God's problem and His responsibility to make our lives count for His purposes and our little place in human history, and He'll do it. That's His responsibility. He's up to it. He will use us, even if we don't necessarily recognize Him doing that one of the things that's a great assurance to me that the Lord will not waste my life or my obedience to him or your life or your obedience or your life lived for him is that miracle when Jesus fed the 5,000 with the five loaves and the two fish I mean they fed this gigantic group you know if you add in the women and the children potentially you're talking about somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people And he just takes the five loaves, the two fish, he multiplies it, multiplies it, multiplies it until it's like Thanksgiving. They can't eat one more bite. And in those days, it it literally said they were glutted. They couldn't get another uh, little bit of St. Peter's fish down. And then what did Jesus have the disciples do after that? He had them gather up the remnants of the fish and the loaves and there were 12 baskets left over. You would have thought he'd say, listen, I mean, that's a miracle. I could, I'll do that again tomorrow. Don't waste your time picking up the remnants. Now, he said, we don't waste. That's not how we do things. You go pick up those remnants, and they picked up the remnants. If he won't waste the remnants of a miracle that he could perform in an instant again, he's not going to waste our lives. That's a great confidence to have in our lives, I think, the book also teaches us that our simple obedience to God today may be setting the stage for a work of God in human history that is generations away, and we need to understand that. Because sometimes we can look in dark times in human history and look at our lives, and we can say, I don't see any fruit from it. I don't see any great impact that where my life is making a dent for godliness or holiness in the culture. It doesn't seem like God is doing anything uh, uh, through me. But as we're going to see in the book of Ruth, there's a child who's going to be born in this book as a result of the godliness of the characters who is going to set the stage generations down the road for the birth of King David the greatest king in the history of the nation of Israel next to Jesus, the king by which all of the kings in Israel would be judged and compared. And not only that, but the godliness and the faithfulness of this little remnant in Israel at the time of Judges also then set the stage for the birth of Jesus himself into the world of the lineage of David. The point is this. While in our moment in human history, it may not look again like our lives are making any kind of difference in the ungodly culture that is around us, but we need to remember that God may be setting the stage through our lives for something that will impact human history in a massive way, but it's one generation, two generations, three generations down the road. And it's good to know that during dark times in human history. There's always a godly remnant and that God is actively at work through that remnant, whether we can see it or not. Do you think about all over the world today, all over the United States, but all over the world, this book of Ruth is being replayed over and over again through the life of Christians, just being faithful to God in Terribly ungodly conditions all around the world. And so, this is what uh, is a a brief introduction to the book, uh, helps us to understand a little bit about what's happening. So, it came to pass in those days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a famine was pretty serious business in those days, and it's serious business today. You can't eat your furniture, you can't eat your house. Uh, You can't eat your car. When you run out of food, uh, that's where you realize what's really valuable in life. And, And there is a very good possibility that God brought this famine on the nation of Israel because of their wickedness. So let's us have an idea of how wicked things were at that time. Remember, God, uh, it, it was in some cases in the book of Judges, decades. One case, 40 years, where the children of Israel head into that cycle of sin, of rebellion against God, before they repented. And so very likely that this famine was a famine that God brought into the land in order to humble them and to bring them to a a place of repentance. And God had warned them in the law of Moses that if they had uh, forsaken him and given themselves to idolatry that he would seal up the heavens and there would be no rain and then there would be no crops uh, in the land. And so here is this great famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, so the Bethlehem in Judah, not the Bethlehem elsewhere in the land. There were two Bethlehem's. So this is the Bethlehem we're familiar with, where Jesus was born and, and uh, David and all. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. And so one of the names of Beth, the name of Bethlehem, is the house of bread because it was just known as a place where crops were plentiful, it was uh, a good agricultural area that terraced the fields and all, and now because of their wickedness, there's a famine even in the place uh, of bread. And so they traveled to Moab, where uh, evidently there was an abundance of food there in, in Moab. You say, well, why in the world would God judge the children of Israel with a famine and not judge the Moabites who are pagans? Judgment begins in the house of God. He held Israel to a much higher standard than the surrounding nations because they had the law, they had the prophets, they had privileges that the that the Gentile nations didn't have, and so they make this journey from Bethlehem over to uh, Moab, a journey of about 50 miles. Uh, across the Judean wilderness and then across the Dead Sea and then you make yourself way up this uh, very high kind of a plateau there and you're into Moab and in that particular section of Moab even to this day it is tremendous the amount of Agriculture and the richness of the soil. You think it's all desert over there and there's nothing in there, but it, it, it is a very, very rich place even today. And so they made the journey there. Now this raises the question in a lot of people's minds over whether Elimelech should have departed from Bethlehem and gone uh, to Moab. There are a lot of people, maybe the majority of, of people, believe that it was a great mistake. And so they will make mention of... Uh, the history of hostility by the Moabites toward Israel, including Balak hiring Balaam to put a curse upon uh, the children of Israel and then ultimately leading them into idolatry and 24,000 Jewish uh, men killed in the plague at Baal Peor. And so, uh, you know, Moab is, it's you know, Distasteful kind of history there. They mention also the idolatry of the Moabites and they were a pagan people. They were worshippers of the god Chemosh and, and, uh, which was a deity that was similar to Baal in those days. And they also mention kind of the disastrous results of the journey because Elimelech's going to die and their two sons are going to die and, and all of that. And they probably are right. But I, I don't mind putting up a little bit of a defense for Uh, Elimelech, my great uncle. Uh, Just kidding. So, you know, during much of the book of Judges, uh, the sinful conduct of the children of of Israel exceeded the sinful conduct of the nations that were around them. It was no great step down morally to leave Israel in their downward spiral and to go over to Moab. I mean, what can you do more than the atrocities that they ran into in Gibeah. Additionally, I think it's very, very clear, as we're going to see, that Elimelech did every single thing that he could possibly do to avoid leaving Bethlehem, including the selling of all of his assets, the selling of all of his land. He did everything he could to eke out a living and provide food for his family. He wasn't going to Moab in order to become an idolater. He was moving to Moab in order to uh, feed his, his family. And Additionally, I don't see anything in the account that directly condemns Elimelech's actions and so I'm a little hesitant to condemn him myself now one commentator that I respect so much he said he raises a good question he said why uh, didn't he settle with his Jewish brethren on the east side of the Jordan River a little north of Moab and to be among Jews I don't know maybe you got me there so but You know, we don't really know whether this was a great move or a bad move, I think, in the eyes of the Lord. The name of the man uh, was Elimelech. Here is the husband of Naomi. His name means, my God is king. And uh, it's a great name. Parents gave him that name with the hopes that that's the life that he would live up to, the fact that his God is king. So maybe he lived a little lower than his, his name and leaving Israel to go to Moab. The name of his wife was Naomi, and her name means pleasantness or pleasant one. Now, in those days, the parents used to name their kids very often after some characteristic of their birth. I know that when one of our daughters was born, apparently coming out, something had happened and her nose got squished on something so her nose was squished all the way over to the side for a little while. We asked, now, is that going to uh, fix it? Yeah, it'll be fine, that kind of thing. But we would have probably named her Squished Nose or something or if in those days, even if she'd have outgrown the thing. And so that's the way. The classic example in the Old Testament is the sons of uh, Isaac and Rebekah. They had twin boys, uh, Esau and Jacob. And uh, Esau was born first. He came out of the chute and And as he came into the world, he was all red and hairy. He already had a sweater. And this little cardigan on him. It's really hairy when the Bible mentions it. So he comes out, he's all covered in hair. So they called him Esau, which means hairy. That's the name he had. And and then Jacob comes out. And they put him right there in the delivery room. And uh, put him next to each other. And Jacob grabs a hold of Esau's heel And so they said, oh, look at that, he grabbed a hold of Esau's heel, let's call him heel catcher. So, I mean, they really were literalists in terms of how they they named things. And so, probably Naomi was born, and uh, immediately the parents recognize this very, very pleasant personality that she has, and they look and say, this is a pleasant child, we'll name her the pleasant one, or we'll name her pleasantness. And so, uh, that's the name that was given to her, and uh, probably... Uh, she was kind of had that personality, cheerful personality, optimistic, cheerful kind of thing, the glasses half full uh, kind of personality. Well, they had a couple of sons, and uh, one of their sons, the names of the two sons, first was Malone, which means sickly. So apparently he was born, and there was some concern about his health. So they, I mean, what, you just think, why would you put that name on him, but that's the way they did it. So they called him Sickly. That's what his name meant. And then they called his brother Chilion, which means pining. Uh, So sometimes when we'll talk about somebody, let's say uh, a widower, and we'll say, you know, ever since Bob lost his wife, he's pining away and it means that he's deteriorating he's going downhill and so the idea was as Chilean was born he is in worse shape than Malone so they so physically these are these boys because of whatever happens with the gene pool here they're not very strong in their constitution and probably going to attribute to their uh, their early death as we're going to see shortly and so they were uh, Ephrathites of Bethlehem Judah and they went to the country of Moab and they remained there and then Elimelech, Naomi's husband he died and she was left uh, and her two sons for a woman to um, uh, experience the death of her husband in that ancient world was a very difficult experience way beyond whatever the loss was emotionally to her a woman in those days was almost completely dependent upon uh, the health of her uh, of her husband the strength of her husband to supply for her needs in terms of food and clothing and shelter so this is a tremendous loss that that she has Uh, experienced here certainly a very strong loss if you're going to look at her life in terms of her security for her old age but at least she could look at it and say I've lost my husband but thankfully I have my two sons and and who would presumably take care of her now they took wives of the women of Moab and uh, that was, uh, uh, again, sometimes people look down on that. Certainly it wasn't the best. But here they are, a couple of Jewish boys in Moab, and uh, they don't know how long they're going to be there. They don't know how long the famine is going to go on. It goes on for at least ten years, because that's, that's how long it is before Naomi goes back to Israel. And so they say, we don't know when we're going to meet Jewish girls anymore and find some that will... Mary sickly and pining, you know, so. uh, Well, these people kicking sand in our face at the beach or whatever. So they they married local girls. And again, it it wasn't ideal, but we have to be careful to recognize that the Moabites were never put on any of the list that God gave prohibiting marriage with the Canaanites or other peoples that lived inside of the land of Canaan or inside of the promised land. God uh, simply spoke concerning the Moabites because Balak did hire Balaam to curse Israel and was successful in bringing a plague on them. God said concerning the Moabites that to the 10th generation, they shall not be allowed into the congregation of Israel. So if you're going to marry a Moabite woman, you had to, number one, make sure that she was a worshiper of Jehovah the God of Israel, and then number two, make sure that you were okay with what that meant uh, spiritually for you in terms of fellowship and and going to the temple or the, or the tabernacle at that time, or going to synagogue uh, uh, later. And so they marry, and the name of the one was uh, Oprah, and she was a, a, a billionaire entertainment. Uh, <laughs> Guru and new age uh, spiritual. Oh no, it's Orpa. I'm sorry. I'm so embarrassed. Sometimes you try things on the fly, you know. But okay, it's Orpa, and uh, Orpa's name means back of the neck. So this this could mean a couple of things for those of you who are uh, glass uh, half uh, uh, empty. Uh, It could mean that she was stiff-necked. I mean, you try to even, as a child, and she'd stiffen her neck, the back of her neck. Or it could just mean that she had a beautiful neck, which is a a, a beautiful feature and that kind of thing. So they might have been accenting something in that way related to her life. And then uh, uh, they married not only uh, Orpah, but the name of the other was Ruth, and her name means friend, or companion. And the beautiful thing about all of their names is they're going to they're be right in character with their names all the way through the whole uh, story. And then, verse 5 is just the bombshell that would go off the thing that you would just fear in, in that day and uh, even today. Uh, then both Malone and Chilion also died, and so the woman, Naomi, survived her two sons and her husband. So on the upside, she survived her husband and her two sons. The downside was she survived her husband and her two sons because now she has literally no security blanket under her uh, in that culture, no one to provide for her in a very male-dominated culture, and uh, no one to look out for her potentially in her old age. She is in a very, very frightening physical circumstance. And we need to understand that. Because uh, she's, she's not going to handle this. She's going to handle it well in some ways, but in other ways she's not going to handle it real great. But we've got to understand this is where she is. It would like be being... And it was hard to remarry in those days. And, and so it would be like today, you know, being middle aged, everyone dying of, of a person, you know, the men or your the husband and sons, all of them dying, dealing with that emotionally, and then having the, everything wiped out that you own. The house gone, all you have left is the clothes on your back, all security, all savings, all everything is gone. This is the position that she's in. Now, Naomi faces a, the, a, a great loss in that she has lost her husband and her two sons. So this is a, she is facing a unique loss in comparison to her daughters-in-law. But her daughters-in-law have also suffered a great loss because now they are widows at a very, very young age. And so now you've got... It would be one thing... If the uh, husband had died and one of the sons and now there's at least one son who can provide for the three, everything is stripped away in in this this particular uh, death. And so this is the circumstance that kind of life uh, places them in, very, very difficult circumstances. Naomi then determines to return home, and so she arose with her daughters in law that she might return from the country of Moab, and for she had heard that in the country heard had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. So she gets word back to Moab that there's been rain in Bethlehem, rain in Israel. That means there's crops and that means there's food and she wants to make a beeline out of Moab back to Bethlehem, her, her homeland. And so this news excites her and uh, God has done something great and so she wants to return. And therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law, they went with her. And, and, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. So they begin now the 50-mile journey back. And then Naomi interrupts the journey, and she said to her daughters-in-law, Go return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest Each in the house of her husband. So she wants to make very clear to these two daughters in law that I'm going back to Judah, I'm going back to Bethlehem, but don't feel that you are obligated to go with me. In fact, she's trying to shoo them off so that because of guilt or a sense of responsibility, they're not going to travel back into Israel uh, with her. And so she gives them kind of permission to head back. She even prays return to your mother's house. Praise that the Lord, there's another husband out there for them and that they will remarry and that their life will be uh, blessed. And so she calls on them to return to their mother's house. Now, this is a great mistake, as we're going to see in verse 15, because she was also calling on them not to only to return to their mother's house, but you see in verse 15, uh, to return to their gods, the gods of their people, uh, the god Chemosh. And, and so this is a uh, really a terrible uh, sin on Naomi's part and and she's encouraging them to return back into the middle of, of that idolatry and she's very, very wrong here. And uh, if it is best for her physically and for her spiritually to return to Bethlehem, then it was best spiritually and physically for her daughters-in-laws to return uh, to, to Bethlehem uh, with her. And so... Uh, This is a mistake that she makes, but she's trying to to free them from from any obligation to her. Their response is an interesting one, and uh, she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And it's really a beautiful picture. It's a sad picture. But it's a beautiful picture. Here are these three very, very vulnerable women. They, they're the only ones that really understand what's going on in one another's heart except for the Lord. And uh, they just begin to weep until probably they can't weep anymore. And, and they said to her, "'Surely we will return with you to your people.'" And so I said, "'No, we're in. We'll go back with you to Bethlehem.'" But Naomi said, "'Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me?' Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should uh, say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and, we, and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourself from having husbands? And she's kind of talking about a, a loose understanding of the law of Moses. Related to if a uh, a uh, a son or a a a brother who was uh, uh, if if a brother died he was married and he died before he had raised up a son then the next blood relative typically another brother was to marry that wife and then go into her uh, unto her and then she would the son that would be born of of that union then would carry the name of the dead. Uh, the dead uh, husband. So it was very important in those days to them that their name would not die out in the genealogies in Israel. And so she's basically saying, listen, if I married tomorrow and I became pregnant and you were going to wait 18 years for this boy and how old would you would be and all. And she's, she's saying, you know, it, 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 there's, no, there's no future in me in terms of husbands. Go find yourself husband somewhere. And, and so she said, No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And so she speaks to them and, and uh, she testifies to the fact that uh, she f- is grieving. She feels that they have now had to bear the consequences of God's active work against her. Uh, Naomi makes another big mistake right here in that she viewed all of these circumstances, the death of her husband, um, the death of her two sons, as being uh, God's direct and very active judgment upon her and upon her family. And she's not the last one uh, to have... Uh, done that. A lot of people may think it, not many people articulate it with kind of the strength that she does in the middle of her loss, but that's what she does. She feels like all of this has happened because God is just up in heaven and he's just singled her out and he's kind of picking on her. And she's wrong about this. The fact of the matter is, is that we live in a fallen world and she lived in a fallen world. And not all death and not all sickness and not every trial is to be attributed to God. But a lot of what happens is simply a consequence of the sin and the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It is because of the introduction of sin into the human condition and death through sin that it exists in the human condition. It isn't God, uh, you know, God didn't initiate that. He didn't bring it in. And so God gets blamed for this kind of thing all of the time. The fact of the matter is, is that this world can be a very difficult place to live in, uh, quite apart from God's judgment or His chastening. Death happens. Sickness happens. Uh, trial happens. Loss happens. Difficulty happens. It's the result of the fall of an Ad- Adam and Eve in, in the Garden of of Eden. And and so here she really misrepresents the Lord by con- implying to her daughters-in-law that all of this has happened because of God's active resistance Uh, to her and that happens a lot in times of crisis the first thing that people think and very often the non-christian world thinks it and says well how could your god you know and they ascribe everything that happens in the world to the god of the bible not realizing it's a little more nuanced than that not realizing how much is tied back to the fall of adam and eve in the garden the consequences of that fall introduced into uh, human history the consequences of which god is ultimately going to completely overwhelm but he hasn't done it uh, just yet and so uh, here she is she's blaming God, and, and God is going to be very, very active in her life in a wonderful, wonderful way. He's not against her. He's not trying to ruin her or anything like that. He's going to do a fabulous thing uh, in, in her life, and, uh, but it's going to take some time for her to see that. So it's not really a shining moment in Naomi's life here in, in representing the Lord to her daughters-in-law. And then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah... Kissed her mother in law and basically said goodbye. And we never read about her in the scriptures again. But Ruth clung to Naomi. And she said, Look, your sister in law has gone back to her people and back to her gods. Tisk, tisk, tisk. Return after your sister in law. It's just terrible again. But she's doing everything to try and push these girls back to their, their culture. But Ruth said, and, and it's one of the most beautiful expressions of commitment uh, in all of human history. Right here, these, these next two verses we're going to read. And she said to her, her mother in law, Naomi, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. That's her commitment to Naomi and who she was and her love for Naomi. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. That's her commitment to the people of Naomi, to the Jews. And then she said, and your God, my God. That's her commitment to the God of Israel, the God of Naomi, the children of Israel. She made a commitment to that God. Where you die, I will die. This is the strength of the commitment that she's making to Naomi, to the Jewish people, to the God of the Jews. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death departs you and me. And so, a beautiful expression of commitment and Uh, very, very strong commitment that she makes uh, to Naomi. And uh, and I would think that what Ruth says to Naomi here probably was a little bit humbling uh, to her when she read about uh, Ruth's deep commitment to the God of Israel. Naomi really, really gravely uh, underestimated the spiritual hunger and desire in Ruth's life. She looked at Ruth, and so often we do the same thing when we're talking with people who are facing a tremendous loss in their life at the moment. And we think, oh boy, this is not the time to bring up God or to bring up spiritual things, because if I do, they're going to blame God and ask, why did God do this? But the exact opposite is true of Ruth she has experienced a tremendous loss in her life but in that moment of loss in her life there is also this great spiritual hunger that she has uh, in her in her life the search for What is a rock? What is an anchor? What can I hold on to? I've lost what the world tells me is the place of security in life, and that is in finding a a husband that can provide for me. I've already been through this now. Where is true security to be found in life? And she's looking to God. And she looks to the God of Naomi. And Naomi, for all of her faults, there is something about her life And her relationship with the Lord that in contrast to the paganism of Moab is attractive to Ruth. Ruth somehow looks at Naomi... And, and looking at Naomi, she recognizes that I love you, I love the person that you are, I love your heart, I love your personality, I love everything about you, but I've been around you long enough to realize that you haven't made yourself into that. What I love is what your God has made you into, however feebly you've allowed Him to do that. And I want what God has produced in you to produce the same thing in me. And that's what she desires of Naomi here. And she says, I want to walk and to follow with your God. And here in the middle of this mess... Naomi thinks that all Ruth is thinking about is bread and clothing and security in her old age. She's not thinking about any of those things. This is a special woman, this Ruth, though a Moabitess. She's thinking, listen, I've already experienced the loss of all of that at a young age. I've already been confronted with the fact that there is no security in the physical realm in this world that I live in. What I'm looking for is a relationship with God the same relationship that I've seen in you, that I've seen in no one else in the land of Moab. And, and that is, is what that great loss confronted her with. And it was a time then to come alongside her and speak of the things of, of, of the Lord. And Ruth is just trying to, sh- or Naomi is trying to shoo her away at a time where, uh, again, greatly underestimating Ruth's spirituality and her desire for spiritual things. Kind of embarrassing when that happens uh, in our lives, but sometimes it does happen. And when she saw, that is Naomi, that Ruth was determined to go with her, she just stopped speaking to her. There was no turning her uh, around. And so now the two of them then went until they came to Bethlehem. And uh, however Naomi viewed her life or how rich or poor she was, nobody's poor who has a friend like Ruth. (laughs) Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited, just spread through the whole city. Naomi's, uh, Naomi's back, Naomi's back because of them. And the women, when they saw Naomi, they said, is this Naomi? I mean, it, she'd only been gone 10 years. But again, we're talking about, and it's important to understand it, I think, in the situation here, is this was hard on Naomi and the circumstances of not only losing a husband, but losing two sons, losing them in a pagan country, coming back to Israel with nothing except one of her daughters in laws who is now a widow, I mean, that took its toll on her. And they, they could hardly recognize her. It's, it's actually pretty interesting, and in an uh, odd kind of way, you think about one of the things that. I've seen before in the past where they take presidents of the United States and they show a picture of them uh, on Inauguration Day and then they show them four years later or eight years later when they go out of office. I mean, it's like they've lived 50 years. The, The toll... That the responsibility has taken on them, on their face and their bodies and just ages them. And so this is a real kind of thing. And so she comes in and people can hardly uh, recognize her. And then she said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasantness or pleasant one. That's not my name anymore. That's not my identity anymore. That's not what I am. That's not my personality anymore. Don't call me that anymore. Call me Mara. And the word Mara means bitter. She said, I am no longer the pleasant one that left. I've been through a lot in these ten years. And my identity now is no longer pleasantness. Don't call me that. My identity now, because of life experiences, I am bitter. You call me bitter. And who's she bitter with? The wrong person. She's bitter against God. For, that's a reason word, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. She's going to blame God for what every single thing that has happened to her. And I mean she is bitter against God. She's not the last one to be in that that kind of a, of a circumstance. Again, it's not commendable, but that's where she is. Now one thing that it, 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 it in, in Naomi's credit here, when she declares that I went out full and the Lord has brought me home empty again, when she left Bethlehem, she considered her life to be full. Now, think about it. When she left Bethlehem, they're dirt poor. They had sold their property in order to get money to feed themselves. And when they couldn't feed themselves, they then had to go to Moab, a foreign country, in order to earn a living in that economy to survive. But she, said, she doesn't say anything like that. I left, when I left, I was half full. She said, I was full when I left. Why? She says, because she measured her wealth in her husband and her children. We may not have had two quarters to rub together, but I had a husband and I had two sons. I was full. Now, So she's a spiritual woman in some respects for how she measures wealth. You have relationships, you have loved ones, you have family... You can not have two quarters to rub together, but you got those relationships. You really are still a rich person. It's relationships in life. So she said, I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Pleasantness since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty, she can't get more God in these two sentences than she does, and the Almighty has afflicted me. And, and so her complaint is against the Lord, and so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the harvest, uh, the barley harvest, which was in March, uh, or April, I 'm going to stop there this evening. Naomi gives her reasons for her bitterness, and the reason for her bitterness is she is, was absolutely convinced that the Lord had testified against her and was actively afflicting her. I lost my husband, I lost my two sons. And now God has deserted me, and worse than deserting me, He is actively working against me. And life has been very, very hard for Naomi up to this point in time, but this is a great misunderstanding on her part, because what she does not realize is that God is more for her than she can believe, He is actively working for her good, but she cannot see it at the moment. He is going to bring an ending to her story and her circumstances that are unbelievable apart from God. Tremendous what he is going to do. But for the moment it looks very, very uh, bleak to her. I'd like us to close in this chapter by turning to a verse in the New Testament, Romans chapter 8. And I'd like us just to set our eyes on a very famous verse there. uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, before we leave her tonight and uh, pick her up, Lord willing, next week. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know... The question is, do we know this? <laughs> God, what, here's, God, here's a verse that God gives us in, in the Bible, and there's something that we're to know from it. And it's a passage that God has brought into uh, the world supernaturally by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, Then he's protected it all the way down through the ages, allowed it to be translated into English so that we could read it tonight. And we know that everything in life is good. Oh, I got one of those Ronco Bibles that I got from the positive confession movement. It's not what it says. It says, and we know that all things work together for good. To those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. God never promises that life will be easy for any of us so that we will not experience great loss, heartbreaking loss this side of heaven. But the promise that He couples with it is that He will work it together for good. He will He will bring that circumstance and work on it to such a degree that it will have a happy ending, whether in this life or in the life to come. Anyone that you might sit here tonight, and one of the reasons I just want to camp on this a little bit, is there's an awful lot of life that is lived in the realm of loss in the realm of great difficulty and great trial and great confusion every one of us spends a significant part of our life in in that circumstance in life and the tendency is to then begin to think that this is something that is god is not active in it or god is powerless against it and Paul writes to us here and says God will never let that thing go until he's worked it together for good. And if you sit here tonight and there is in any of our hearts bitterness against God over some loss, over some circumstance that we find ourselves in this evening then you need to have to just write above that. and I say it lovingly in the same way I would want someone to say it to me. You have to write above that circumstance, not finished yet. God is working that circumstance together for good, and he'll be faithful to do it. And what is the good that he works all of these difficult circumstances together for good in? Well, He promises that by the time we're done, we'll be healthier, wealthier, and wiser than we've ever been uh, before we went into the circumstance. We'll all drive late model um, luxury cars, and uh, we will uh, find some kind of a stock market broker that can get us an 18% return per year, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, international vacations three or four or five times a, a year. No, that's not the definition of good. Romans chapter 8, er, verse 28, should never be read independent of verse 29. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, that's us, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the good thing that He does. That on the other side of all difficulty and trial, the thing that we will look at and the good that will be done is to be able to say, He has made me more like Christ as a result of this. I see like Christ in a way that I never would have apart from this. I feel like Christ in my heart, compassion toward the world that I would have never known apart from this circumstance. I understand in a way that I would never understand. And the good is that we're being conformed into the image of Christ. So tonight, if the worship team would come forward and lead us in a little bit of worship as we just meditate on this passage this evening, if you do find yourself in the middle of a very bitter circumstance, just know, be patient and, and, and exercise faith and give time to God knowing that He promises that He will work it together for good in ways we can't even believe could happen.